Hello, uh, welcome to Two Peds in a Pod, the medical education podcast from the Children's Emergency Department in Derby. I'm your host again, Ian Lewins, one of the consultants here, and I'm delighted to be joined again by one of my consultant respiratory colleagues, Dr. Nigel Ruggins. Good afternoon, Nigel. Hi. So last time we talked about wheeze and making diagnoses. Um, we're going to talk about a bit of therapeutics now. Yeah. So we've made our diagnosis of, yeah, this child I think has asthma, here's how we're going to treat it. And I'm presuming we follow the BTS guidelines. We do. Um, end of podcast. Fantastic. No, no, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> <That was> um, <laughs> so uh, those who are interested in uh, asthma treatments will notice there are some slight discrepancies between what the BTS uh, tells us to do and what NICE uh, tells us to do, um, which in a way allows us to take, like. take, the be- <laughs> take the best of both and um, adjust it to your own, uh, your own practices perhaps. Yeah. But it's salbutamol first. First line, salbutamol? No. uh, There we are. So there's a change, really. So effectively, if you're making a diagnosis of asthma, you are saying that this child has got recurrent symptoms, Mm -hmm. you've got recurrent background symptoms as well. So they would say that the first treatment really should be a first-line preventer, which would be an inhaled corticosteroid. Right, okay. Okay. So there is a slight change in emphasis. Uh, yes, of course, you still use salbutamol, and you'll be using salbutamol for uh, symptom uh, treatment in wheeze, and in those patients that you've not yet got to that point where you are sure they're diagnosed as asthma. But if they are asthmatic, you're implying that they've got a chronic inflammatory disease of their airways, and therefore that treatment should be aimed at that rather than the symptoms. Okay, there you go. Slight switch. Um, And thinking about delivery of that, it's virus baser. Yes. Every single time. Every single time, um, except when you get problems in older children who uh, will just not use spacers or will not tell you they're not using their spacer, but you know they're not, and they're using an MDI straight into the mouth. And for those patients, then, obviously, there are other alternative devices, um, dry powder-type devices, uh, things like uh, turbohalers, acuhalers, the like. And um, if it means that they're getting the treatment that they need, then, you know, that's a, that's a good thing. Better something than nothing. Absolutely, and better something uh, that's taken in a proper way rather than t- using something inappropriately. Yeah. But largely spaces. Yeah, standard is... Uh, Meter-dose inhaler with spaces. Okay. So you've made the diagnosis. You've started them on a preventer. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what are the things that you would look for in clinic that would say, yes, good response, or no, we need to up things? Yeah. So I think you have to have a good thought in your mind about why you're starting the preventer and what you're hoping to see that it's going to be doing. So... If they've got a chronic background, uh, background cough, particularly night time, you want to see that uh, go. Uh, you want to see them to be able to cope with sports and exercise, mm. particularly in cold air, better. And um, if they do use their blue inhaler, you want to minimise the effect um, uh, in that amount of time that they have to use that. You want to reduce, you won't necessarily eliminate it, but you want to reduce significant exacerbations. Um, and effectively what you're trying to do is, despite the fact that they're having to take this treatment, you're trying to let them lead as good 
um, quality uh, life uh, with no impairments on what they're doing at all. Okay. And so let's say they come back a few months later and parents say, well, mm, all right, but could do better, still coughing a lot at night time, still struggling a bit with sport. Would you then up the steroid or or is it uh, just let's reassess things first well you'd reassess things first and the things you always need to reassess if there's not been a great you know response to treatment or it's not as good as you would expect is just to make sure that they're using their inhaler appropriately um, to make sure that they're uh, doing the treatment at the times that we're suggesting that they're doing it that they've not made their own <laughs> uh, adaptions yeah. to doing it and if those all seem okay yeah. then the next step would be according to where uh, you are on the a dose of steroid that you've used but the next step would normally be um, in a child that's over five to introduce um, a long-acting uh, beta-2 agonist. Okay. And as a, on, on its own, as a, as a separate inhaler to the, the steroid, or do you, where are you with sort of combination inhalers? Well, we would normally um, just go to a combination inhaler, and that may seem um, a little bit strange as a, as a step, but actually the re- there are good reasons for that because you want to uh, ensure that they don't find, oh, this new long-acting beta-2 agonist is really helping me. I'll try it without the steroid. Yeah. You don't want yeah. that. Secondly, having two inhalers can create a little bit of confusion mm. and also may affect their adherence. So it's even better just to go switch over to a combined inhaler, uh, even for that initial trial. The other thing is that it's much cheaper, actually, right. than providing the two inhalers separately. So that's been our local practice. That's what we've tended to do. OK. And which sort of combination inhaler do you tend to prescribe? So the most common one that we would use um, when we're using a metadose inhaler is, is serotide. So yeah. it's a, a combination of flixotide in terms of an inhaled steroid and um, uh, salmeterol as a long-acting beta-2 agonist. And what colour is it? It's purple. Right, and that's important. It is. Because parents tend not to say, oh, I'm on this. They go, no. I've got the purple inhaler. And you exactly. go, oh, bloody hell, which I one is that? I can't remember. Because <laughs> um, I know there's the blue one, there's the brown one, there's the purple one, and there's the green one. Yeah. What's the green one? So the green one is the long-acting bronchodilator on its own. Right. So that's uh, that's the salmeterol. Right. Yeah. Okay. So those are the colours we need to remember. They are. That's because, yeah, parents know colours, but not the names of them, generally speaking. Yeah. Okay. How about Montelukast? Yeah. Singular, not singular, it's not, not to. Yes. Yeah. yeah singular. Yeah, singular. Sorry. Yeah. 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 So this is a um, a completely novel uh, attempt uh, when it was introduced. Um, uh, treatment of asthma, not steroid based. So it's a, a leukotriene um, receptor antagonist. And um, the initial trials were very encouraging. Um, it was very clear that it wasn't as potent as introducing an inhaled steroid. It was probably, for those that you're old enough uh, to remember, it's probably about the equivalence of um, sodium chromoglycate when we used to right. use that as a regular preventer for asthma. Um, and uh, the initial studies were really quite encouraging, particularly um, in the uh, very younger children. Mm. And um, so, um, uh, unfortunately, uh, the evidence base for it has not 
been as strong as perhaps we would have hoped. So you will find if you look at the NICE and BTS guidelines, um, it's way down the list. So it's there as an add-on treatment, particularly in the under fives if they're on an inhaled steroid and they're still getting it. But it's not there as a standalone preventative treatment. Because um, it was it was what bond stage wasn't it, it? It, was, it was an alternative to the steroid. It was, and uh, I always used it in the, as much as saying that um, I know that this isn't as effective as an inhaled steroid, mm. but also my experience was that it would pick up a lot of the younger children, mm. the under fives, without them having to go on to a regular inhaled steroid. And I have to say, in my own practice, I would still tend to use it as first-line prophylaxis in very young children and have a low threshold to switch that over if it isn't good enough. Mm-hmm. But Montelukas isn't one of those uh, treatments that you have to carry on for ages and ages. If it works, it works very quickly. And either the parents come back and say, wow, that's the best thing since sliced bread, or they say, well, it may be a little bit better, but I'm not sure. In that latter group, you would just mm. go on to inhaled steroid. But um, there is still a group that seemed to show a good response, even though perhaps that has not been... Um, we've been not been able to identify those in the big evidence-based trials. Right, because that's kind of been my experience. They come back and go, you're brilliant. Yeah. Or you're an idiot. Absolutely. And, but it's not... Uh, my, I, don't, I don't know if this is true or not at all, but it tended to be those maybe maybe a bit more atopic seemed to get on better with the Montelukast. Yeah, I think I think it's I think it is quite variable. And as I say, uh, when you're thinking that there's only a small group that tends to respond to it, and then mm. you try and subgroup that, it becomes quite you know difficult. But my, as I say, in my own practice, I would tend to still give it a try because you're not wasting anything. Mm. You know, They're within you give them a two week trial within that period, they will either be better right. or not. So as short as that? As short as that. Okay. Yeah, as short as that. And very often parents will notice a difference within 24, 48 hours. Right. And this is in the young ones we're talking about the sprinkles, aren't we? Yeah, we are. The the, the granules yeah. and uh, and for the older ones there's a you know chewable fruit flavoured um, um, treat. And it is once a day mm. and it's much easier to administer than regular inhaled therapy. Yeah. And can parents put it in anything, the sprinkles? Um uh, they're, they're not meant to put it in anything, right. and there's quite strict guidance as to how they do it around meals. But I think that's more about um, uh, the drug companies being a bit more um, careful about what they should be doing. Okay. I think practically it does seem to work in most situations. And a bit of yoghurt for the toddlers. And a bit of yoghurt for the yeah. toddlers. Or, yeah. 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 OK. Um, fine. So that's our Montelukasts, our... our purples are blues and, and all the other colours. Do you get much resistance from parents to inhaled steroids? To sort of say, what about growth and what about thrush and what about those sorts of things? Not nearly as much as we used to. And right. I don't know whether that's just because it's become much more common and much more acceptable for children to receive um, inhaled steroids. So there's, I find that there's much less resistant. But even so, you still talk to them about the fact that 
you know, when we're starting off, it's small doses oh. that actually the evidence is that children with asthma that are undertreated are going to have uh, more effect on their growth adversely than children that are appropriately treated. Um, and, uh, you know, good techniques in terms of, again, we've already emphasised the use of spacers to minimise uh, thrush local yep. side effects as well as systemic side effects. Or, um, and, uh, you know, making sure they do it before they brush their teeth or uh, just uh, very good, simple advice and techniques that will minimise it, let them understand it, tell them that this is something that they're going to be continued to monitor, that we keep an eye on their growth every time they mm. come to clinic. And it's all part of that ongoing assessment. Mm. So not much resistance to... Not as it was in the past. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting, but I don't find it nearly as much. Okay. Okay, so we've then got the tricky ones, that you've tried all these things and we're we're happy that they're compliant and that technique's good, but they just still keep coming in to see us with exacerbations. Um, Where next for these guys? Well, so... We've gone on to a combined inhaler with a higher dose of inhaled corticosteroid. Um, we've uh, probably given them Montelukast as well, although um, it, it, from my experience, it doesn't really help those very severe ones uh, very much, but it's well tolerated. It doesn't have side effects, so we tend to use it um, as an add-on treatment. We'll even think about going back to the good old-fashioned theophylline. Um, So we're seeing a bit of a resurgence of that. Um, And interestingly, some patients still respond really well to it. So the main reason that theophylline um, fell out of favour was because it was... It was poorly tolerated because of GI side effects. Uh, The worries about the narrow therapeutic um, um, uh, index so that um, relatively small changes in doses could make you you toxic. Mm. So the worries, again, um, during an acute exacerbation. Um, And again, it's a a treatment, an oral treatment that needs to be taken regularly. You need good blood levels for it to have any effect. But we have been using it a, a bit more. And then for those groups, then you're starting to think about if they're still troublesome, you're starting to think about um, uh, possibly alternate day oral steroids at low dosage, which we want to avoid as much as possible. And uh, these days now they're the uh, biogenics, so things like um, uh, Zolaire, so uh, actually targeting uh, the high circulating IgE levels in these asthmatic patients. So this is a treatment that's uh, intravenous. Uh, Sorry, it's not intravenous. It's injected. um, And uh, they have it either two-weekly or four-weekly, and it's targeted against their level of IgE. Massive undertaking by Mm. patients. uh, Massive expense as well. Um, So the patients have to be well chosen, and um, uh, they have to be monitored to show that it's making uh, a significant response mm. to them. For and them. my understanding is that they've got to meet very strict criteria to, to qualify for this. They have, they have. And again, you know, we need to monitor how they do with it because there are some patients that we have started with it um, who uh, really don't seem to have shown a significant benefit. We've had some um, who have been frequent inpatients and with prolonged um, admissions. 
And uh, they say that day to day they don't notice any difference. And then you look at actually um, what's happened to them in terms of inpatient things and they've not been admitted for a couple of years. And, of course, the original funding for this treatment came from that fact that um, you had to demonstrate that it would reduce hospital admission. Mm. So um, certainly even if they don't notice a day-to-day difference, that may be a significant benefit to them, of course. And is that something that's expected to be prescribed by a respiratory physician? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You can't pop to your GP. You can't pop to your GP. Um, You have to tick all the other boxes, as you say. So you need to really have a good feel about adherence. Um, And uh, so these days we may even um, issue them with a a smart inhaler, which will measure the uh, amount of inhaled treatment that they're actually taking, not only just what they're prescribed, but what they're actually taking. And that can be very revealing. Um, (laughs) uh, Even when they know it's being monitored, when they bring it back and it's only been had 20% usage, then, you know, it opens up a discussion as to where we should go. Um, We look at other things. So we think about the environment that they're in, other trigger uh, problems. So there may be um, uh, other issues, psychosomatic type issues, or there may be uh, upper airway type problems. Mm. So laryngeal dysfunction type problems that might need addressing that might actually improve their overall control. Yeah, fantastic. Last question which is sort of slightly different, but as an acute question, Mm -hmm. is the discussion that's sort of ongoing about steroids for acute... Uh, for acute exacerbations. Absolutely. Now, yeah. it, not long ago, if you walked through the department and you vaguely wheezed, <laughs> you got walloped with three days of oral prednisone, thanks very much. You did. And now, and then we sort of shifted almost completely the other way to nobody got it. Yeah. And now we seem to be just sort of shifting back to say, well, hmm, maybe you should yeah. get it. What, what are your... <laughs> so my views are very much that in the under fives, there's very little evidence that we should be giving prednisolone to any acute wheezer that comes in. However, if they have a diagnosis of asthma or, or somebody has put them on a regular inhaled corticosteroid, mm. then there would be things to suggest that they probably, when they have an exacerbation, should have um, oral steroids. Um, in the over fives, I think the question is, you know, why not uh, more than why? So in the, older, in the older child, I'll be, I'd be saying, well, why wouldn't I give this child mm. steroids? And unless there was a reason, then you would get on and do mm. it. And uh, the other sort of ongoing discussion is PRED versus DEX here, mm-hmm. because we all know that PRED is disgusting. Yeah. And many times you get, can you prescribe another dose because they've just vomited it back up, whereas dexamethasone seems to be much better. It does. Tolerated. It does. So you, would you have any particular... I, I, I mean, I think, you know, whatever whatever you can get in, probably. Yeah. So there may be some advantages with regards to dex. Um, and certainly when we use it in croup and upper airways, oh. it's very well tolerated oh. and works really well. So, you know, in terms of... The evidence base and the comparisons, I think, I don't think there's a great deal that I've seen out of there, but I, I, there's no reason why one mm. should work any different really to others. Mm. So it's about tolerability, really. And that's a good point. I think I've seen elsewhere, and exactly who elsewhere, but uh, to sort of say, why not? Mm. Rather than, yeah, okay. And that's a message we're trying to get out in primary care as well. So all these discussions about, you know, because one of the questions that I often ask is, well, do we, don't we give them steroids? Mm. And um, so I think, again, that's uh, we've um, developed the local wheezy child guidelines, and in that it sort of 
reiterates that in those younger ones, probably not, unless there are clear um, uh, worries about asthma or they're on a regular inhaled steroid. In the older ones, then uh, give it and think about it later. Mm. And finally, is there any place for something like Montelukast in a pulsatile manner in these acute ones? I've seen some of my colleagues used to do that. So, sort of more in hope, I think. Yeah. Again, uh, I think if you look at one-off cases and talk to parents, then some people uh, believe that it did seem to have uh, a benefit, but unfortunately, it's not been ba- it's not mm. been backed up by the uh, by the randomised controlled um, studies. So, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, Monte Lucas has got uh, quite a, a poor press at the moment. Mm. Um, yet, as I say, it came as a, a revolutionary new attempt at uh, attacking, a, attacking a different pathway in asthma. Um, and I think, um, like all these new treatments, um, uh, there's a, a, an upsurge in uptake and interest, and then it will find its place. And I still think it has got a place, mm. but I don't think there's any evidence really to suggest that postal treatment, unfortunately does anything in terms of reducing the duration of symptoms or um, the length of illness or their a bit you know their need to come into hospital okay so I think key key take-homes from me are why not for steroids and go back and learn the colors of your inhalers <laughs> <laughs> lovely thank you very much for your time Nigel no problems cheers okay